Well, let's keep going in Ephesians, just as Spencer pointed us to. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be in the first half of that chapter. We'll start in verse 1. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. If you need to see those words, you don't have a copy of God's Word, you don't have your phone or whatever, they will be on the screen. I will read out loud. You follow along as you will. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to you, to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Amen. Your secret is safe with me. You ever overheard someone say that? And then you immediately wonder what? I wonder what the secret is. Uh, uh, don't worry, by the way, if you, if you ever tell me a secret, uh, it is definitely safe with me because I will probably immediately forget. <laughs> tell me you're having a baby, uh, I will forget to tell my wife, and then she'll later on ask me, why didn't you tell me? And I'll be like, oh yeah, I think they told me and I forgot. I'm, I'm a champion secret keeper. <laughs> but there are a lot of people who cannot keep a secret, Right? You know them, I know them. They just have to tell someone that secret thing. That's the nature of secrets, that eventually they are going to be revealed. They don't stay secret for long. Some things are just too spicy. you got to tell someone. Some things just need to be, wait. you need to wait until the appropriate time for those things to be made known. Paul here is talking about a secret. He uses the word mystery, but it's not the kind of mystery that you would find in a detective novel, right? It's not a case to be solved. Instead, what he's talking about is a divine secret hidden in ages past by God, and God is waiting for the right time to reveal it. And the time is now. That's what Paul is saying. 
The time is now. The secret is about the purpose and the nature of the church. And I think if you were to ask someone, people inside the church, outside the church, everyone has an idea, or at least they think they do, of what is the purpose of the church. Why does the church exist? So if you were to go out and ask someone on the street, they might tell you that the church is supposed to be a force of good in the world, or that it's supposed to be a place that helps people, or that the church should be the place where we can teach others a system of ethics. The secret, though, is that even though the church is involved, certainly in all of those things, those things are byproducts of what the church does, our core mission is something different. Through the church, the mystery of the gospel is proclaimed and it is on display. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has been unpacking, Spencer talked about it, that supernatural unity that the church experiences because of the gospel. And now at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is coming back. He, He had been praying early in the letter, you'll remember that, prayers of thanksgiving and proclamation of the glory of God, and now he's returning to that posture of prayer for the Ephesian people. He had started in chapter 1, and now he's coming back to that, but he pauses mid-thought because he's unable to leave this topic of Christian unity. So look at verse 1. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, and if you go down to verse 14, you can kind of see where he's going. We're going to come back to it. Next week and the week after that, we'll look at this prayer. For this reason, I, Paul, verse 14, bow my knees before the Father. So he's heading into prayer. But before he gets there, he's drawn back to this consideration of the division that has been healed through Jesus. So look at the way he identifies himself. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. Uh, it, that, that may have been the thing that recalled to his mind this division. He was in prison. We, we remember from history and from Scripture, Paul was in prison because he had brought a Gentile offering to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And then he, while he was there, he talked about it. He proclaimed the, the, the reason for it. And he proclaimed the same supernatural unity that he's been talking about to the Ephesian church. And as a result, he gets thrown into prison. But Paul is willing to endure, even as we talk about the persecuted church, he's willing to endure prison or worse because he knew something that other people didn't and they needed to know. It is this mystery. And Paul wants to take a few more moments before he goes on to prayer to explain it. And then he's going to give an example of how it works itself out in his mystery. So first, the explanation of the mystery. In our English Bibles, you, you may have noticed that that word mystery is used four times in these few verses. And it's not the first that we've heard Paul talk about it. He, he's been talking about it all throughout the second half of chapter two. We've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. He didn't talk about it as a mystery there, but it's the same idea. And, and he had even introduced that idea in chapter one, Verse 9, he wanted to make sure that this divine secret, he says in chapter 1, verse 9, set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. 
was absolutely clear. And, and if you look at that word mystery, again, I, I said this up front, it doesn't imply that Agatha Christie type story where the author is planting clues along the way and the reader is supposed to try and figure it out as the story unfolds. Instead, it's a divinely held secret that can only be revealed through supernatural means. It was a knowledge that was secretly held in God's divine counsel from eternity past. But it wasn't meant to be kept a secret. It was always meant to be revealed. Chapter 1 says, in the fullness of time. That's the phrase that Paul uses. So go go down to verse 6. We're going to kind of work our way back up the first half of the passage. Paul, once again, is clearly outlining this mystery. He's been talking about it, can't get it out of his mind, and the truth and the mystery and the secret is that the Gentiles have the same access to salvation as the Jews. They stand on equal footing in salvation, despite their ignorance of the law. And last week, Paul used, you'll remember, maybe three pictures to emphasize that togetherness. He said, we're citizens, we're the household of God, we're the temple of God. And here again, he's going to use another three pictures in verse 6. The Gentiles are fellow heirs first, both with Jesus and with their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. They are members of the same body. You'll remember that Paul made up a word last week to emphasize togetherness. He does it again here. He makes up a word that they are members of the same body, members together of the same body. Chapter 2, verse 16, Paul had already painted that picture of reconciliation where both were reconciled to God in one body. Then lastly, the Gentiles are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the history of Israel tells us that Gentiles could have come into the covenant community of Israel all along the way if they became Jewish. Circumcision and adherence to the law and Sabbath and ceremonial cleansing and all of those things. In Christ, though, here's the secret. Here's the mystery. They did not have to become Jewish to experience the promises of salvation. This divine, secretly held knowledge is available and understandable through the good news of Jesus' work on the cross. Once he died, once the temple curtain was split in two, everything was different. And as he unpacks the mystery once again, Paul explains how he came to know about this mystery. And if you're familiar with Paul's story, this won't be, this won't be new to you, but it's important. He, it was given to him, he says in verse 5, by revelation. And it wasn't something available in ages past because it was, again, hidden in that divine counsel of God. That's the nature of what it means to be mystery. It's hidden until just the right time. But then Paul, in verses 3 and 4, explains that the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. See, God had revealed to Paul the mystery and had given them him then the commission for him to go out and preach that mystery, that truth to the Gentiles. And I think that's a really, really key point. 
that the mystery was made known to Paul by revelation. So let's look at that just for a moment. You'll remember Acts chapter 9. You can turn there if you want, but uh, I'll just review it for you. Paul met Jesus on the road to, to Damascus. This was the moment of that revelatory event. Jesus met him personally. Jesus met him powerfully, that blinding light. And then Jesus commissioned him for service to the Gentiles. He was supposed to take the good news of the gospel to them, to the Gentiles, to all over the world. He had preached this same message that he has now brought to the Ephesians. And it was when he reported his work, his message, and the Gentiles' response back to the people of Jerusalem, it was met with just utter hostility from the Jewish people. They, they rioted and they demanded his imprisonment. And, and later on, Paul is making a defense to King Agrippa in the course of a bunch of trials that he goes through. And he recounted Jesus' words to him. This is what Jesus says to Paul, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place, listen, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It's a whole new thing. To the Galatians, Paul uh, says it this way, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul is an apostle in that he has seen the risen Christ and been sent out on mission for him. Paul is a prophet in that he has a message from God to deliver to his people. And you'll see in this passage, Paul doesn't claim to be the only recipient of that revelation. Verse 5, indeed, it had now been revealed, he says, to, the, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Um, others were taking the gospel to the world and recounting the truth of that gospel in the scriptures, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, they're writing and they're speaking and they're teaching and they're preaching. And if we read through the account of the early church in the New Testament, book of Acts and so on, we come across episode after episode where uh, the gospel is going out from Jerusalem and then it goes out to Judea and Samaria and then it goes out to the ends of the earth. But see, Paul was unique in that he was specifically commissioned to the Gentiles but, but even Peter, if you think about Peter, famously a Jew, famously sent to the Jews, famously even antagonistic towards this idea of unity between Jew and Gentile in his flesh. He carried the same message. Remember Acts chapter 10 and 11? Uh, there was a Roman centurion who had heard of the outpouring of the Spirit. His name was Cornelius, and he sent for Peter. And Peter receives a dream from God that it's okay to go at uh, Cornelius' house and he preaches the gospel. And this is Peter's conclusion after spending time with Cornelius and his household and his family. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, to the Gentiles as he gave to the Jews, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? 
that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the mystery. This is the same thing that Paul had written about to the Ephesians. This is the same thing that Paul is being imprisoned for, to say these things. Finally, let's look at verse 2 here. In revealing the mystery to Paul and to the apostles and the prophets, God had for them a purpose. Paul explains it, verse 2. He understood himself to be God's steward to administer and explain that mystery. He assumes that the Ephesians there in verse 2 have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. See, he was supposed to take the mystery and then he was supposed to deliver and explain this message of God's grace. He says, it was given for you, Paul says to the Ephesians. The, the gospel meant that people who were irrevocably divided were now supernaturally united through God's divine power. The gospel is good news for everyone. It unites all those who place their, their faith in Jesus and submit themselves to his lordship. Paul spent a lot of time on this, in this book. I think scripture spends a lot of time on this throughout the course of the New Testament. And when we hear it, you know, Jews and Gentiles and circumcision and adherence to the law and all that kind of stuff, we're tempted to think that that is some kind of ancient conflict in a land far away that doesn't really have much bearing on our lives. But I want to tell you that human nature is human nature. We struggle with these same things, these same division issues that, that were present here in the first century. And so for us, as we think about how Scripture applies to us and is relevant to us, I would say this, how radically are we willing to open the doors of our church how radically are we willing to open our lives and love people that think and act and present themselves differently than we do? It's good in theory when it's out there. When Paul is on mission to the Gentiles, oh yeah, that's great stuff. But when it comes a little bit closer to home, it's easy to ignore that. It's easy to make excuses why it doesn't apply to me. In theory, we're willing to allow our differences be insignificant in Christ. But I wonder in the deep, dark corners of our minds that we would never let anyone really see or have access to you, are there remnants of those same divisions? I wonder what kind of person, if they walked through the door of church this morning, would cause you to struggle that they were here? Uh, we would never say it that way, of course. Uh, but, but aren't we quick to want a church that looks like me, that acts like me, that thinks like me? Aren't we quick to insist on our own preferences? You know, I really like modern worship music. Why would we ever sing anything that feels like it's from the ancient 
Someone said that this week, and I said, well, I take offense to that. The 1900s, I remember those days. <laughs> Young people should really learn to like hymns. They're good for them, like they're vegetables. <laughs> Enough with that 7-Eleven music. We don't need any of that. Did you know that in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is going to address this exact issue? He tells the church, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not because necessarily you get along, your preferences are all the same, but out of reverence for Christ. And one of the examples in that context is that we would be addressing one another, Ephesians chapter 5, look it up, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, did you catch that? There's two directions of our worship. We're we're singing to the Lord. Of course we are. We know that. He's he's the audience of our worship. doesn't really matter what our preference is. He's the object. We're to do it with a variety of styles, songs and hymns, spiritual songs. But in our musical worship, we're not only focused on Him, but we're also addressing one another. We're considering... What draws that person's heart into communion with God? And that's going to be different for different people, isn't it? It's relevant, right? Because we're, Lord willing, in the next few months, we will have a brand new director of worship ministries. And he's going to be different than Mike. And he's going to have different ideas and do things differently. And if our thought is, I don't really like the way he does that because he didn't do it like I want it and he doesn't do it like Mike does it, we're thinking wrongly. We, we, we are united despite our differences and we can expand out that application, right? I like hunting, but if someone hates hunting and hates the Second Amendment, he can still be my brother in Christ. Can we live in agreement and harmony whether you're a homeschooler or a public school parent or a student? Can you prefer one another if you choose to exercise your Christian liberties or refrain from them? Are you appreciative of those who are more expressive in worship and those who are less expressive in worship? Because those divisions don't define us. Our unity in Christ defines us. There was famously two Supreme Court justices who sat on the opposite side of the ideological spectrum who were the best of friends. You've probably heard about them. They're gone from this world now. Justices Scalia on the right side and Justice Ginsburg on the far left, and they bonded over their common interests. And by all accounts, their families enjoyed to spend a great deal of time together. And one account tells that Justice Scalia had two dozen roses delivered to Justice Ginsburg for her birthday almost every year. And he was asked, what good have all those roses done for you? Name one five to four case of any significance where you got Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg's vote. And Scalia replied, some things are more important than votes. And the article concludes this way. It says, their mutual devotion to the Constitution, while built on different interpretations, helped them form a mutual respect that would extend far beyond the courtroom. Now, if that can be true, and it's beautiful, we all think it's beautiful, but if that can be true across the political divide, 
How much more should it be true in our spiritual family? How much more should it be true when we don't have a shared devotion to the Constitution? We may have that as well. But we have a shared devotion to Christ. That the Ephesians grasp this mystery is so crucial to Paul that he can't say it enough. But he wants people not only to hear this explanation of the mystery, he also wants them to see an example of the mystery in his ministry. So he goes on starting in verse 7. In verse 6, the Gentiles are invited into God's family through the gospel. Now in verse 7, Paul wanted people to see how his ministry served to amplify that message. So first he addresses the means of his ministry. It's not his influence, he says, that brought about this unity. In fact, his declaration in verse 7 and 8 is this, that he was made a minister though he was the very least of all the saints. Now this is not a case of false humility. We know Paul to be an impressive theologian. but He's probably a great orator. He's a pastor par excellence. But he points out that his dependence on his own gifting, his own power, is not enough. It's got to be supernatural. He says that his ministry was according to the gift of God's grace which was given by the working of his power. Paul recognizes that this task of overcoming these divisions is monumental, and if it's going to work and if it's going to happen, it has to have a supernatural power behind it. And God does that work. But, but look at what Paul also notes. I think this is really interesting, is that God uses a medium in that ministry. It's a, a very particular way that God gets the message out. Look at what he says, verse 8. God uses preaching. Paul says that to him, grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Now, isn't that interesting? That's what it says. The, the, the mystery that we had already talked about of God's work is, is absolutely incredible. Look at what he says. It's the unsearchable riches of Christ, the mystery hidden for ages in God, verse 9. So why would God entrust such a crucial message to fallible, weak human beings? Wouldn't it be more dramatic if if, if each of us were to have a divine encounter like Paul? Why not use a prophetic dream like God gave to Peter? Wouldn't people be more inclined to listen? But God, in his divine wisdom, has chosen the foolishness of men's preaching to deliver his message of supernatural power to heal the divisions through the gospel. God has given the gift of preaching to the church in order to illuminate his majesty and his message. Paul was sent to preach in order, verse 9, to bring the light for everyone, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Preaching is not an opportunity for one man to draw attention to himself, but to God and to his plan. Paul wanted the Ephesians, verse 10, to appreciate 
this purpose of the preaching ministry. He begins that verse so that he's about to make a purpose statement so that God uses the preaching of this mystery revealed through Christ so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. And if you've been with us for eight, nine weeks, that brings us all the way back to chapter one. Everything is to the praise of his glorious grace. All of history's events are about showing the greatness and the majesty of God. And the most crucial of history's events, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and return, are the subject of what we do every week in this moment in our preaching. He ordains the proclamation of his beauty and his majesty through the words of a man. Not only, by the way, look at it, is preaching central in that display, but God shows his power, the power of the gospel, look at it in verse 10, through the church. That's you guys. This is the most important message that the world could ever hear, and he has chosen you, and he has chosen me to deliver it and to display it. It's a message that is to be delivered, Spencer camped on this just for a moment, to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places. We're given the opportunity, you and I, to announce Jesus' victory over death, over all spiritual powers of the universe. And all of this, verse 11, is according to the eternal purposes that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not a mistake. This is not plan B. This has been in place since eternity past. This is God's plan. And we are spending a lot of time, you may think, unpacking, just as Paul does, the church's gospel hope in these chapters. We've been here, by the end of our study, we will have been here 10 weeks. And the reason we're spending so much time is because they serve as a platform for the church's gospel culture. We'll talk about that in chapters four through six. The gospel affects how I live my life. The gospel affects how you live your life. And our lives are meant to be on display to draw others to, the, to its truth. And too often, here's what I fear, I fear what is lacking in our lives is not a knowledge of what we're supposed to do. Not a knowledge of what we're not supposed to do. But we lack that supernatural power to allow the Spirit to affect us in our everyday lives. We want to rush through chapters 1 through 3 so that we can get to the checklist of things that we're supposed to do in chapters 4 through 6. And we miss the mystery of God working through us to accomplish His purposes. Look at the results, verse 12, that we may have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. The mystery of the gospel gives us boldness to speak truth, to put truth on display in our lives. It gives us confidence that we are who God has created us be, to be. We are being made into the image of Christ by the work of the Spirit. It empowers our daily lives even in difficulty. Paul tells the believers there in verse 13, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. It's for your glory. He could only say that because he had confidence in what Jesus was doing through him. 
And it is the opportunity for the mystery of the gospel to continue to be displayed, to continue to be proclaimed into the future. One of the reasons that I love getting up here and preaching to you every week is that I believe that God is pleased in His wisdom to use my preaching for whatever reason to confirm His message, the message of the gospel that makes a difference in the lives of believers. I believe that. It equips you to face life. It enables you to access the Father through the revelation of His Son. And my desire is not that you would walk away saying, oh my goodness, that was such a great sermon, but oh my goodness, how great is God. Not that you would be inspired or informed. My desire is that you would grasp the manifold wisdom of God. That you would understand the plan of the mystery hidden for for ages in God and that you would respond. My goal is that you would walk out of that door and that you would be transformed and put on display a testimony of what the gospel can do in a person's life. There's another reason I'm excited to be and I'm committed to making preaching sort of a core component of what I do. It's that I'm confident that every single week there are unbelievers here in our worship services. And I trust that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to deliver the gospel which is powerful to save. Do you believe that? I do. And so if you're here this morning and you're thinking, okay, I get some of these things, I don't get some of these things, but God is, I want to know more. Today could be the day. I would encourage you, confess your sins, call out to Jesus. He is eager to save you. And if you need to know what that means, please don't hesitate to ask someone. Ask me. But by the way, I, I would send you out, Christian, with the same motivation for you to preach the gospel to the people in your circle. Now, now you won't do it the same way I do it. I won't do it the same way you do it. You may think to yourself, I'm not confident in my ability. I I don't know that I'm knowledgeable enough. All I'm asking you to do is to be a witness to what God has done in your life. Certainly you can do that. Tell your story. It's not the eloquence of the messenger. It is the power of the message. It's not the specific combination of words or arguments that is going to bring someone into the kingdom of God, but it is the spirit of God. And we have the mystery of the gospel. Jesus has solved the division between people who shouldn't be unified. More importantly, Jesus has solved the division between God and man. And you and I are beneficiaries of that if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. God gathers for himself a new family and through that family, the church, the mystery of the gospel is proclaimed and displayed until he comes again. Let's pray. Dear Father, let us be billboards for you. Father, Pete started us off praying about the persecuted church. They have, they have only limited ability to proclaim <laughs> their, their fidelity to you. And they, they do so even in the peril of their own lives and their own freedom. 
God, in our country with our freedom, help us to be bold and confident to declare and to witness the things that you have done in us. God, help our lives to match our words so that people will ask us the hope that is in us. Father, may it be true of us that our love and devotion to one another is inexplainable except through the gospel. Father, would we treasure the unsearchable riches of Christ. May they be precious to us. And may we give ourselves to proclaiming and displaying them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.